Welcome to part two of our conversation with Ram Fish, CEO and founder of 19 Labs. Ram, when we spoke with you last, um, you really uh, laid out the blueprint uh, for what's required to make impactful telehealth clinics and hubs in rural communities in Latin America and um, your uh, most favorite Guyana, where you have found the support of the Ministry of Health and the president, especially helpful in um, growing and sustaining these programs. And we're grateful for all those insights. I want to pick up our conversation here in part two um, by learning a little bit more and getting some more detail on the incredible amount of time and resources and man hours it goes into setting up one of these rural clinics versus um, what happens once the clinics start. When we spoke with Milton Chen, he talked about the hundreds of hours, man hours that go into setting up the logistics, doing the on the ground research, working as you described with the local community leaders and making sure that that equation made sense for the product to be long-term and sustainable. Can you tell us a little bit about what goes into you setting up these clinics and what the life cycle is of the ones that you've set up so far? Um, I love Milton's comment and I've learned a lot from him. So recommend it to everybody to go and listen to his to your podcast and interview with him. There are two things I, I would like to add is setting up a feedback loop. No system is sustainable if there is no feedback loop, which means you need to con collect information on the usage and being able to analyze it. And in most of those places, train the people what it means to sit and work based on data, not shooting from the hip, not hand-waving, but what has actually happened in different locations. And um, review and then solve problems. Here we have a connectivity problem. Here we have a solar problem. Here we have a health worker that got arrested. Uh, here we have a health worker that needs some more training. Uh, here we need to give some uh, nice good words because they did a really nice job. Uh, being able to continuously monitor, which involves setting up dashboard, collecting information, some automatically, some uh, uh, through the right forms with the right questions. but. Any kind of um, system that needs to be sustainable needs to have a feedback loop. So I would add an essential component of dashboards and regular meetings and correcting mistakes, bringing the best habits uh, that have evolved and distributing them to the rest of the group. Uh, a feedback loop is absolutely a must. 
Uh, second part is kind of obvious, but sometimes people ignore it. You know, if we try to build and solve rural healthcare with a 10,000 people company wanting to be a unicorn and paying Western salaries to everybody, it will not be sustainable. You can't do it that way. If you try to build all the technologies yourself, the diagnostic device, the control system and everything, it's just going to be too costly. You'll have to pass the cost to your customers and it will be too expensive. So the ability to build a company to do it in a way that you can break even and make some money and realize that now you'll probably not be a unicorn and probably this is not something exciting for venture capital, but you can build a good business here as long as you realize that you're building a good business for governments in developing countries and the cost structure of what you're doing need to accommodate the revenue model of your customers and their ability to pay. And as a result, we have been very much a very nimble group of people that, um, you know, uh, Milton sometimes talks about how he's built all of those amazing components. We prefer to integrate and bring the amazing components and we find it to be much more um, cost-effective. For example, a specific one is rather than developing our own video conferencing technologies and chat and everything, we decided to leverage Zoom. So thinking like this about how you bring the right technologies in rather than just let's build everything because we can, uh, I think is a critical component of making a solution that's sustainable in developing countries. Ram, I have a question about this idea of using, of course, the technologies um, and the already uh, developed platforms within your um, infrastructure for carrying this out. One of the things that might come up with that is um, how do you have control of your data and be able to collect your own outcome data and KPIs without your own platform? So is there at least a minimum platform that's needed? Oh, this is absolutely a minimum platform needed. But we make very clear distinction between administrative data. There was a consultation that lasted 15 minutes from this community to this doctor, to a patient data, which is this patient had this health problem. We have an administrative platform to help manage the deployments and monitor the deployments, but we believe the healthcare data belongs to the health ministry. So we'll integrate and upload it. Uh, we'll temporarily keep it uh, as it transitions. And, but we are not the, in the business of like so many of my Silicon Valley friends building a business around taking customers' data and analyzing it. The opposite. We view ourselves as the protect, 
the one in charge of protecting the patient healthcare data. Rather, and rather than monetize it or AI it or whatever they want to do, machine learning based on it is, no, we're here to protect the healthcare data. We'll transfer it from the patient, the health worker into the health ministry. And that's trickier than it sounds, especially when you're dealing with uh, developing countries, uh, intermittent connectivity, limited bandwidth, and the likes. Um, the administrative data is critical because you need it for dashboards, you need it to solve problems. And that's the other side of the platform. And I think we are actually one of the few in the industry that have what we call a DMS, a deployment management platform that sits in the cloud and help you manage the deployments in real time. I want to ask a little bit about this administrative data. Sustainable development goals are, uh, of course, a, a big um, buzzword and very important to ministries of health um, globally. What sort of administrative data do you find helpful in feeding back to your political and Ministry of Health leaders to show the value of the work that you bring? First of all, I want to emphasize that the value is about healthcare equity. Value is not necessarily monetary. Value is not monetary, it's healthcare equity which means that value might be you actually spent $10,000 to do a medical evacuation of a three-month-old baby. So providing healthcare equity is expensive. And the data that the politician needs to be able to assess the system is how many serious cases did we have? How many medical evacuations did we have? How many were prenatal? It's the kind of information that helps them win the internal budget fights, allocation of money, and so on, when they are able to go and say, look, we had 50 or 100 or 300 prenatal cases, 54% of them were serious, and we saved X life with Y medical evacuation. That's what I mean by administrative data. Thank you for that. What are the greatest healthcare needs and the inequities that you have seen in the communities you are serving? I'll answer a slightly different question but based on what you asked. It's very common that people ask you about, okay, how many diabetic versus retention versus prenatal do you have in a community? And one of the things I've learned is that while this data might be important, communities react different to different healthcare issues. The most painful part in a rural community is 
is when you lose a young mom, and most of the moms are in late teens or early 20s, um, while she's pregnant, or you lose a baby. That creates a much stronger emotional pain in the community and frustration with the government when it happens. So the acute pain point that's most urgent to solve in those communities is what you can do around prenatal and very closely after is pediatric. These are the two most important areas. It might be that you'll have the same number of deaths from diabetes of 40-year-old or pretension, but the pain within the community, the anger that results from losing a 16-year-old mom in a attempt to deliver is much stronger emotionally within the community. Not sure if that's the question you asked, but that was was crossing my mind. No, that's perfect. Thank you so much. That's uh, not uh, an uncommon set of needs and inequities. So um, caring for women and children is certainly part of um, the UN's SDGs, right? Sustainable Development Goals, Um, for the reasons you state I wonder if I can ask you to be a a little bit um, future thinking and aspirational here. In your opinion, what role is telehealth playing now and what role can it play in the future to increase healthcare access and equity? Not inequity and equity in healthcare. (laughs) I have to be careful about that. (laughs) I don't think that... um... Telehealth is just a way of delivering healthcare. And it is going to become, and it's becoming now, I would say, just an essential part of healthcare delivery. It's not going to be the only model. You still need to see a doctor sometimes face-to-face, or you need to see the health worker face-to-face. But the model that we are seeing in healthcare Globally, is a model in which healthcare is delivered more and more in what technologies call the edge. It's not in the heart. It's not just in the hospital. If you look 20 years ago, where is healthcare? Healthcare is in the hospital. Where is healthcare is going to be delivered? More and more in the edge, in the schools. And we have hundreds of schools in rural Utah, West Virginia, Missouri or rural communities and churches in remote places. And the capabilities of what you can do on the edge are drastically increasing. Today we can do ultrasound and exam cameras. By 2025, we'll see more and more blood testing, complete blood counts. Uh, medications deliveries and drone deliveries of medication is coming up. So the capabilities of what you'll be able to do in the edge is drastically increasing. 
I prefer to think about it that way rather than to think about telehealth. And as you think about the edge, again, the most critical part is the person who's operating the edge. And that person is more and more a community health worker, not what traditionally referred to as a nurse. Do you want to ask me about the difference between health worker and nurse? Yes, please, go ahead. You can talk to us a little bit about community health workers and nurses. You are um, definitely seem to be an advocate for community health workers and um, their increased uh, learning and growth and supporting community health care workers. So tell us a little bit more of that. I think the way I view health workers, these are typically 18-year-old, 16-year-old, 20-year-old high school education, sometimes not even high school, who care about the people, care about the people in their communities. In a lot of indigenous tribes, it was a traditional role of having like a medicine woman within the community. And that's what the community health worker is. They have shorter period of training than traditional nurses do uh, because training is costly and training often uh, involves leaving the community. So less amount of training, and still the same big heart and empathy and caring that you see. Uh, being able to get along with technology is critical because a lot of what they do involves tablets and cameras and ultrasound and plugging and screens and typing. And more and more, they will be leveraging different parts of AI to do preliminary screening, preliminary assessments. And that's the role we see for health workers. They are because the training is shorter and they live locally, and then the salaries tend to be lower, but that's what makes the healthcare delivery sustainable. If we needed to go and use the traditional model of nurses and place nurses in all of those communities, in most places it will be too costly. I want to clarify something because this came up in one of our uh, previous episodes as well. And so I don't think you're suggesting that we are going to change the level of training that the healthcare professionals in the rural community should have. But I think you're suggesting that we will take a group of healthcare workers that it's easier to create, easier to pay and sustain, and offer them support from people with higher levels of education and more training so that they can carry out their role at a higher level within the community. Exactly. So the, the doctor or a registered nurse might still be the brain and they sit a hundred or 500 miles away. But the health worker in the local community is doing more and more of the uh, day-to-day 
handling of the patients when the doctors kind of are connected when they need an advice or guidance. If you wouldn't mind, I want to circle back for a moment. You were very um, careful to say you prefer to talk about healthcare on the edge and not telehealth. There seems like there's something there that makes telehealth perhaps not uh, a useful term for what you see as the developments that are happening moving forward. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think telehealth is not the right word? It's overused and it's too wide in it. Like, you know, in technically speaking, if you go and check the online definition, it it even includes um, medical training. And then there's the expression telemedicine, which traditionally refers to being able to use some kind of other diagnostic devices during the call. More and more, we are seeing what we call asynchronous care, where you can send messages and receive answers, and messages might include photos. Is this telemedicine, or is it telehealth, or is it something else? There's lots of technologies involved. What important is that the healthcare is moving to the edge. The place where you receive the care is in your home, in the community center, in the school, in your employer. Uh, that's, I think, the fundamental movement. Whether is it tele, or what does tele mean? Uh, I, I prefer not to, to use this expression. Rob, we're thrilled to have you on the edge and being on the cutting edge of extending equitable healthcare to people in the most rural communities, um, your work. Uh, is definitely inspiring. How can our audience connect with you and with 19 Labs? Ram at 19 Labs. And uh, go on our website, send us a message, and send me a question, LinkedIn. Be glad uh, to help if anything comes up. It has been an absolute pleasure to have this discussion and conversation with you today, sir. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this week's episode of Voices of Healthcare Equity. In our podcast, we've explored the vital role of collaboration between public and private enterprises backed by government support for sustainable health equity innovation. If you're a minister of health, public health officer, or a dedicated public official working to enhance healthcare access and equity, we want your voice, your voice on our show. Share your valuable insights and perspectives with our audience. Contact us at Dr. T, that's D-R period T, at H-A-E-W.org to secure your spot on the podcast. Listeners, we need your support too. Share today's episode with a friend. Leave us a review and share your thoughts. Interested in being a guest? Email us. Please visit https colon double slash haew.org to learn more, join us, partner, or contribute.
Together, let's amplify this conversation for a healthier and more equitable world today.